Welcome to Cultural Technologies. I am Bernard Dionysus Gagan. In an interview from March 2011, the philosopher Ray Brassier declared that, quote, the speculative realist movement exists only in the imagination of a group of bloggers promoting an agenda, end quote. Perhaps that quote can now be updated to include the imaginations of podcasters. Today's program features a recording of French philosopher Quentin Mayassou delivering his now historic lecture at the Speculative Realism Conference held at Goldsmiths University of London in 2007. That conference, organized by Brassier and Alberto Toscano and co-sponsored by the journal Collapse, was arguably the point of departure for speculative realism as a movement with some broader, uh, say, public recognition. Uh, what then is speculative realism? The introduction to the transcripts of the conference described that event this way, quote, rather than announcing the advent of a new theoretical doctrine or school, the event, namely the conference, conjoined four ambitious philosoph philosophical projects, all of which boldly problematize the subjectivistic and anthropocentric foundations of much of continental philosophy, end quote. But more simply, we might say that speculative realism rejects philosophies that conceptualize the world exclusively in terms of human being, human experience, or human ways of knowing the world. Uh, we, we got a, a, a glance at one approach to that in uh, our last episode, which featured uh, an interview with Graham Harmon, whose object-oriented philosophy was uh, also featured at the, uh, at the original conference. Maya Sue has... Uh, termed uh, the philosophical approach to which um, he and his uh, colleagues are opposed uh, correlationism, arguing that modern continental philosophy has been restricted to a narrow set of reflections about perception, conception, subjectivity, subjectivity and literally uh, to what extent does philosophy or human knowledge correlate to uh, the actual world. Mayasu says that it's time to move on to another agenda that's not uh, so uh, narrowly focused on human perception, human understanding. You could probably ally the speculative realist, move, realist movement with a wider turn in the humanities uh, in the last decade or two towards non-human factors, right? So uh, you could include in that movement uh, Latorian actor network theory, the thing theory of literary critic Bill Brown, a renewed interest in instrumentation and technology within media studies and science studies, uh, or also what um, film theorist Lisa Okerval at the Humboldt University has termed the neo-neorealist cinema, characteristic of uh, recent filmmakers such as Gus Van Sant and Kelly Reichardt. Rather than waxing philosophical, I'm going to let you listen to the lecture yourself, Robin McKay of the journal Collapse very kindly uh, procured this recording for us. Uh, and you can also find the transcripts to the original talk on his website or on the website for the journal Collapse. I strongly recommend consulting those, uh, partially because the, the recording has imperfect quality. Um, and so sometimes reading helps clarify exactly what's being said. Uh, you can also find on uh, the Collapse website other uh, articles by Maya Su commentaries on Mayasu, discussions of speculative realism. You can buy uh, new issues of their journal, you can download old ones for free, and you can make a donation if uh, you think what they're doing is um, interesting, and I think you probably will. So I encourage you to go visit there and to support them uh, generously. 
One last note, as I said, uh, the audio quality is uh, imperfect. If there are, are any audio wizards out there who feel qualified to clean up the sound of this recording, we welcome, uh, say, your help. Um, if you feel like doing that, you can reach me through the main page of my website, www.burnerg.com. Thank you, and here's the lecture. Rests on an argument as simple as powerful 
and which can be formulated in this way. No x without givenness of x, and no theory about x without the position of x. If you speak about something, you speak about something that is given to you and posited by you. Consequently, the sentence x is means x is the correlate of thinking in a Cartesian sense. That is, x is the correlate of an affection or a perception or a conception or of any subjective act. To be is to be a correlate, the term of a correlation. And when you specially pretend to think any x, you must posit this x, which you cannot separate from this special act of position, of conception. That is why it is impossible to conceive an absolute x, an x which would be essentially separate from a subject. We can't know what is the reality in itself because we can't distinguish between properties which are supposed to belong to the object on properties belonging to the subjective access to the object. In my opinion, the principles of science of knowledge written by Fichte in 1784 are the shape of, of such a correlationism. The science of knowledge is the most rigorous expression of the correlationist challenge opposed to any realism until now. I'd like to begin this talk by remembering the principal aspect of this philosophy so that we could be conscious of the very nature of the anti-realism at its climax. I won't speak, of course, about the details of this very difficult book, but I shall only recall the hurt, the hurt of its argumentation. The principle of its conceptual production, which appears to me as the most precise form of the obstacle that a contemporary reality has to surmount. I will rely on a recent interpretation of the science of knowledge, which has completely changed the comprehension of Fichte, at least in France. Isabelle Thomas Fogier proposed, proposed in 2000 a devastating criticism of the dominating interpretation of Fichte in our country, Pionenko's interpretation, and allowed us at last to read the true science of knowledge instead of the extraordinary but also eccentric reconstruction that Filonenko elaborated in 1969. Briefly, Filonenko claimed that the three principles of the science of knowledge, the three first principles of the science of knowledge, including the famous I equal I, were not true principles, but dialectical illusions that Fichte undertook to deconstruct all over his system. So, science of knowledge, you have three principles, and he deduces all the world from these three principles. No, it's not true. It's still, there, there were illusions that Fichte deconstructed. Filonenko, of course, has therefore also to explain that Fichte was a strange guy, since he had said to everybody the exact opposite of what he really meant. <laughs> <laughs> The situation was in France as if a famous interpret had claimed during 30 years that the definition and axioms of the ethics of Spinoza were some illusions deconstructed by Spinoza and convinced everybody that Spinoza was just a very well man to say systematically the exact contrary of what he really thought. Thomas Ogier quite simply restored, according to me indisputably, 
the immediate truth on this point. The principles of science of knowledge are true principles, and thanks to her, French philosophers have at least discovered what everybody already knew. <laughs> <laughs> How must we resist, consequently? According to Thomas Roger, as a thinker of the pragmatic contradiction, Fish is a thinker who intends to evaluate every philosopher by its capacity to do what he says and to say what he does. A pragmatic contradiction consists, as you know, in contradicting, in contradicting the content of a sentence by the enunciation of this, of this very sentence. It is not a logical contradiction of the type Peter thinks and Peter thinks not, but a contradiction between the content of the sentence and its performance, its effective formulation. For example, I don't think does not contain logical contradiction, but consists in a pragmatic contradiction between the content of the proposition and the fact that I think or pronounce it. The fact I think this proposition is in contradiction with what I say in the proposition. Thomas Roger used this notion elaborated by Indica in relation with Descartes and Austin to interpret the science of knowledge as a philosophy written under the systematic constraint of pragmatic non-contradiction. Especially science of knowledge destroys any account of realism by proving it is always and immediately self-contradictory in a pragmatic way. What is really doing a philosopher when he claims to have access to a reality independent of the I? He posits, said Fichte, the X supposed to be independent of any position. In other words, he posits the X as non-positive. He pretends to think what is independent and exterior to any conceptualization. But doing so, he doesn't say what he effectively does. He says his X is indifferent to the thought, but what he does effectively, saying that, is of course to conceptualize an X perfectly dependent of his own thinking. Hence, the pragmatic contradiction between the act and thesis of any realism, a realism according to Fichte. But the very originality of Fichte, by which he anticipates <coughs> Hegelian dialectics, is that this contradiction is essentially fruitful. fruitful. <coughs> Contradictions produced naturally by realism in the science of knowledge do not lead to the end of the discourse, but to the creation of new concepts able to temporarily neutralize the mortal opposition between content and act. Only temporary, since such concepts allow to such concepts allow to shift again and again the contradiction, but not allowed to abolish it, at least in the sphere of theory. The resolution of initial contradiction between being the privilege of practical reason, not of the theoretical one. To be more precise, we could say that there is for Fitch a sort of double bind for philosophy itself. It has supposed to posit the secondarity of thinking relatively to an independent real, Otherwise, we couldn't explain the passivity of sensation. And in the same time, it composites such a reality without contradiction. This double bind, which is finally the meaning of realism, still for contemporary philosophy, we need it, but we can't claim it, so we claim and deny it. This double bind never oversteps, according to Fish, the limits of the eye. 
because the active I is the first and absolute principle of his philosophy. But this constructs the most elaborate destruction of any realism by a strategy we could call of the pragmatical genetic contradiction. I mean, exhibition of a way, of the way, in which the realist is forced to create his own concept in order to escape for a while his finally fatal contradiction. To be a contemporary realist means, in my view, to challenge efficiently the Eastern fatality of pragmatic contradiction. Not precisely to challenge the very thesis of the science of knowledge, but the way of reputation which is there invented and who the principle is always the same. If you think it, then you think it. That is what I called the circle of correlation. The first argument of every correlationism which claims that realism is necessary a vicious circle, a denial of its very act. Can realism pass with the test of pragmatic contradiction? That is a question which governs my own investigation and that I shall examine in relation with the non-philosophy of François Laruel on one side, with the principle of actuality I set out in after finitude on the other side. Why this comparison with Laruel? In his wonderfully radical book, Neil Unbound, Rev. Rassier devotes a chapter to after finitude and another one to the non-philosophy of Laruel. Rassier, who is the first force reader, tries to show, notably, that the transcendental realism of Laruel is a more reliable and rigorous way to root out the philosophy of correlationism than the one I, I propose. Even if the reading of Brasil is generally kind towards after finitude, he points out some weaknesses, according to him, of my argumentation, and particularly the fact that I talk of an intellectual intuition <coughs> of facticity. In this expression, intellectual intuition, Brasil suspects the possible absolutization of meaning and maybe a remnant of speculative idealism that threatens my wings to escape from the circle of correlation. <coughs> I shall try to respond to this objection in the following way. First, I will show why the non-philosophy of Laurel, despite its admirable rigor, failed, according to me, to find efficiently the argument of the correlational circle. And I will demonstrate this point by applying to non-philosophy a Fichtean model of refutation, that is, a refutation based on pragmatical genetic contradiction. Then, I'll show that what I call intellectual intuition in a certainitude, or what I shall call no, what I shall now call, more precisely, dianoetic intuition, is able, contrary to the non-philosophy, to neutralize the correlationism even in his Fichtean version, <coughs> that is, according to me, even at his climax of rigor. The funny thing is that I discovered, after I decided to confront Fichte and Laurel, that Laurel himself compared in his principle of non-philosophy his own reasoning with Fichte's one in the science of, no of knowledge. But Laurel is a tributary of the outdated, outdated commentary of Finanenko. That's why his confrontation is disappointing. <coughs> Let's start with Laurel's conception of what he calls philosophy or, again, the circle of decision. And that we can also call the circle of objectivity. 
Decision with a big D is by Larmel the source of every philosophy in any time. Gratis sums up precisely the meaning of this decision by remembering the Kantian structure which underlies its conceptualization. Every philosophy is constituted, according to Larian, of three moments. First, an empirical datum. Secondly, a factum made of a priori categories. Categories unified by a transcendental, the transcendental apperception for Kant. Finally, we have a return of the a priori to the datum, that is a unification of datum and factum, moment which corresponds by Kant to the transcendental deduction. From this last unification proceeds the experience as the transcendent reality produced by philosophy. Those moments we can also call circle of philosophical decision or circle of objectivity. Vassy contests, and I think he's right, that this triple movement constitutes, as Laurel claims, the eternal essence of philosophy. He suggests to identify what Laurel calls philosophy with what I call correlationism. Consequently, Vassy claims that Laurel, with his non-philosophy, works out a non-correlationism more radical and true than my own version <coughs> by intellectual intuition. Let's see how Laurel proceeds to extricate himself from the field of philosophy, namely correlationism in Brassier's version. I can, of course, reproduce the whole reasoning of Laurel, which is complex and evolves, and evolves <coughs> from a book to another, but I won't need to do it to explain my objection. First, I remark that there is a precise reason to refuse the identification between philosophy and the circle of objectivity different from Gracier's own reason. Gracier claims it is then to look for an eternal essence of philosophy, philosophy being constituted by the contingent history of facts. But I think there is another reason, a structural one, to refuse that philosophy should be encapsulated in the circle of objectivity, one that Fichte was probably the first to conceive. This reason is, if you want to think the circle of objectivity, what Fichte calls the representation, unification of datum and factum of the a priori, you need a point of view outside of the circle. That is, if you want to conceive what a representation is, you need a faculty which can't be itself representative because there is no representation of representation. You can have a representation, perceptual or imaginative, of a house, of a, of a world, but you can't, you can't have any representation of a representation. If you want to think what a representation is, that is, a unity of datum of a priori, you need something else than objective knowledge, this one being itself constituted by the unity of datum and a priori. This was the essential weakness of Kant, according to Fichte. Kant didn't explain how it was possible to write the critic of pure reason. He described every knowledge in terms of objectivity, that is, in terms of representation, of synthesis, of categories, of space-time, but his own philosophical knowledge about objective knowledge, that is, about representation, couldn't be described in the same terms. How was Kant able to elaborate transcendental notions as matter and form, as categories, as representation. This operation needed, according to Fichte, another faculty 
which was almost not described by Kant, the faculty of reflection. And this faculty, the reflection, contrary to the apparent opinion of Laurel, is essentially different from objectivity. Reflection is a non-representative, a non-objectivating faculty, which is a condition for conceiving the objectivity as such. Reflection is what allows Laurel himself to stand outside the circle of objectivity when he conceives its unity. Laurel is outside the circle of objectivity when he describes it, because describing it means not being anymore in it. But this is also the case of every philosopher who eventually describes this circle. All of them adopt, consciously or not, the point of view of reflection. Fichte was the first one to adopt consciously and systematically this point of view in order to construct his system. Consequently, if you, want, if you want to escape from the circle of correlationism, you must not only escape from the circle of objectivity, but also from the larger circle of reflection, which is outside Lowell's circle, and, and includes it. Correlationism, in my definition, includes reflection, since reflection is position. When you conceive the circle of objectivity, you are outside this circle, but still in the circle of correlationism, according to me. So if as Laurel you posit something outside the circle of objectivity, in his case, the real outside philosophy, this real will still be, according to me, in the circle of correlationism. Because it will be a positive real, a real positive by reflection outside of representation. This is exactly what Fisk called in his technical vocabulary the independent activity, that is to simplify extremely the notion of the thing in itself outside the representation, the Kantian representation, and impossible to conceive by this representation. Let's demonstrate this point more precisely. Here is my strategy. As I said previously, I propose to apply to Laruel the Fichtean way of reasoning, not his precise ills, but the pragmatico-genetic contradiction which constitutes the principle of his argumentation. I am going to reconstruct the position of Laruel in a correlational way, showing how what he calls real is nothing but a positive real, and how the concepts created by non-philosophy are just shifting this contradiction without being able to abolish <coughs> it. We shall see clearly then why I, th why I think that Laruel doesn't really escape from the circle of correlation. Let's begin with the real as described by Laruel. The real, he said, is radically different and independent from the circular objectivity. The real precedes thought, but thought, conversely, is always dependent upon the real, which is essentially unaffected by thought. That is what Laurel said. This is the content of his discourse. But, if they have a question, what does he do? What is the act of his discourse? Laurel, of course, posits such a real as independent of any thought. Consequently, he does exactly the contrary of what he says. He says, real precedes the thought, in particular philosophical thought, and is indifferent to it. But <coughs> the order of what he does is the, is the opposite of the order of what he says. He begins by thinking, and especially by thinking, what is philosophical thought, and then progresses until the real. Real is truly a notion of the real which is dependent on thinking, and which is post-philosophical, elaborated from his notion of philosophy. The real order, the order of the act, not of the content, is manifest in the very name of Lauer's theory, 
non philosophy. Non philosophy is supposed to think relation of thinking with a real which precedes philosophy. But the name non philosophy can only be constructed from the name philosophy with the negation. Philosophy precedes non philosophy in the nomination as in the act of thinking. Hence, we have a first and manifest pragmatic contradiction between what Larry says about the real and what he does when elaborating this notion. But of course, this contradiction, this <coughs> pragmatic contradiction, is far too trivial to worry Larry. And we can imagine he could easily respond to it. But how? By producing new concepts. The contradiction, the contradiction, the pragmatic contradiction, is becoming fruitful because it compares the thinker to shift it so that he could avoid a gap which in fact will never be filled in. Lawrence could first demonstrate that our objection proceeds from a series of confusions. The real is negation of nothing. It is relative to nothing, according to him, and especially can be identified to the concept of the other which supposes the X whose other it is. Real, on the contrary, is radically autonomous with without relation with thought. Thought otherwise can distinguish itself from real if it ceases to identify itself with philosophy locked up in the circle of objectivity to think under the axiom of real. Then thought knows itself as determined in the last instance by real, says Larvel. That is, thought knows itself as relatively, but not radically autonomous. This means that thought can, can produce by itself its own concept but has to avoid sufficiency of absolute autonomy, proper to philosophy, on which is its intrinsic illusion. We now have a series of new concepts, radical and relative autonomy, sufficiency, determination in the Latin sense, etc. But have we then escaped to the, from the correlational circle? Of course not. We have only deduced what is necessary to think a positive real if we admit that this real precedes effectively any position. <coughs> but Larrell gets this first position just by force, just by a coup de force. Hell is posited as indifferent to its position and as non related to the thought. After that, Larrell reflects the possibility of his own theory by claiming the relative autonomy of thought. But in fact, it seems on the contrary that his thought is able to posit the real itself and its relation to the real. That is, to posit that real has no relation to thought and thought a relation of relative autonomy to the real. He also posits all these concepts as essentially non dialectics But what he does is, of course, easy to dialectize. For the real is more linked than before to his concept, more dependent on more and more intricate elaborations aiming at the exhibition of its independence. And of course, every other thesis of Larvel will, will only make the situation worse. That's why the only solution of Larvel will be the solution of, according to me, every modern realism against correlationism or idealism. As it seems impossible to escape from this position, from this objection, the only solution to this is to disqualify what you can't refuse. <coughs> the solution of Larrell can only be first to say that the real is posited by an action, that is something you can neither demonstrate nor discuss, and secondly, to introduce a precise concept which will disqualify in advance anyone who contests such an action. 
That is, that is the concept of resistance. I will start the system reconstruction of Larue with this concept that I propose to examine considering its genealogy and its strategic importance for any contemporary reality. To understand for sure of the concept of resistance, we must be conscious of the main character of correlational circles. That is, this circle is both monotonous and apparently implacable. It is only the same objection, tedious and irritating. If you put it X, then you put it X. Sometimes we encounter this raging situation. A brilliant, subtle, and interesting theory is easily refuted by a well-known and trivial argument claimed by a stupid opponent. That is often the situation of the post-Kensian reality in front of the correlations. And this produces necessarily the same psychological reaction of the realist, who will become both tired and firm. The perfect illustration of the primitive scene, primitive scene of this psychological law of modern realism, according to me, can be found in a comic book of Tantin. I don't know if you know Tantin in England. In one of his adventures, his acolyte, recalling in France Capitaine Adot, tried to unstick a plaster from his finger. But of course, each time he takes it with another finger, the plaster sticks immediately on it. <laughs> and since the process is endless, Haddock <coughs> quickly loses his nerve. The plaster is identical to the that is what you think that the correlationist just has to add to any of the realist seasons you will try to assert. Realist always has to posit more concepts to prove he has access to a pre-conceptual reality. The situation seems desperate. How could you refuse that each time you think something, you think something? That's why the realist, conscious of the apparent vanity of his reasoning, has generally, generally renounced to refuse the correlationist and has adopted what I call a logic of cessation towards him. This cessation is a blunt refusal addressed to the correlationist. And I won't discuss with you anymore. I will rather discuss about you. This is a logic of unbinding, of independence. But this independence is not originally the independence of the real towards the correlation, but of the realist towards the discussion with the correlation. This logic of cessation takes, it seems to me, two principal forms in, in modernity. The first one consists in fleeing voluntarily from the discussion in order to find again the richness of the concrete world. Schopenhauer said that the solipsist was a fortress impossible to penetrate but also unuseful to attack, since it is empty. Solipsism is a philosophy nobody can refuse but also nobody can believe. So, let's leave the fortress as it is, and let's explore the world in its vastitude. The first strategy of the realist is to do the same with the fortress of correlation. If you want to stick me your plaster, please do. But, leave me quiet. I have so much interesting reality to investigate. <laughs> this is what I call the rhetoric of the rich elsewhere. The realist disqualifies the correlationist argument as uninteresting, producing arid idealities, boring academics, and pathological intellectuals. Let's stop to discuss and let's open the windows, let's inhale things and wind. 
This is an attractive and sometimes powerful rhetoric, not in a pejorative but in a Nietzschean sense. A rhetoric of the fruitful concreteness of things, the revenge of description and style on repetitive quibbles. Latour sometimes favors in such a way of links with correlationism, and he does that with much talent and humor. But I precise he also uses, of course, other elaborate instruments to find the circle. But in the case of the rich as well, rhetoric, it is clear that it is not an argument, but it's the disqualification of the one who argues the sickly and boring correlations. The other way of disqualification used by modern realism is the most fundamental one. It exhibits the implicit logic of rich elsewhere, which consists in replacing the discussion with the correlationist by an exposition of his motivation. We don't examine anymore what he says, we examine why he says what he says. It is a well-known logic of suspicion that we find in Marx with the notion of ideology, or in France, <coughs> or in Freud, with precisely the notion of resistance. The realists fight every form of idealism by discovering the hidden reasons of these discourses, reasons that do not concern the content of philosophy, but the shameful motivation of their supporters, class interest, below, etc. In this way, the realist explains by advance why his theories must be refused by those who are unable to see the truth for such or such objective reasons. Hence, he will neutralize any reputation as a symptom already described of social or psychological resistance and conscious resistance, which is, according to the realist, often unavoidable. But what is interesting from my own point of view is to remark that this well-known strategy of suspicion can be understood as a necessary result of an inability to refute rationally the both insipid and implacable argument of the correlationists. And we could say the same about the Nietzschean suspicion about the sickly content of university. Larmel inherits these strategies through his own concept of resistance. He says, of course, that his non-philosophy must necessarily suscitate high resistance of philosophy. He predicts that philosophers will reproach him a coup de force, exactly as I did. And he claims that any reputation he will encounter from the point of view of the circle of decision is a necessary effect of his theory of the real upon philosophical sufficiency. Rassier makes an interesting, an interesting suggestion about Larmel's theory. He says that one of his major concepts, unilateralization, unilateralization, is a surgical, I call a surgical intervention, intervention upon the body of transcendental synthesis, severing terms from relations, amputating reciprocity and sharpening one-sidedness. Unilateralization is a complex concept of Larmel, I can't explore now, but which is admirably explained by Barati in his book. It is, generally speaking, the consequence in the thought of the radical autonomy of the real toward the thought. What, what he says, it seems to me, is that Larrell introduces in the principle of thought circle, made of reciprocal synthesis between categories and intuition, the essential asymmetry of real and thought, asymmetry which disjoins correlation of critical and idealist philosophy. philosophy. But my own hypothesis about this power of disjunction is that it proceeds more profoundly from the strategy of secession toward correlationism. Radical autonomy of the real is symbolizing from the thought 
is produced by the radical autonomy of the non-philosopher of Larouet and himself throughout any discussion with the correlationists. Larouet posits the real as an axiom, and then he posits his refusal to discuss, to discuss correlationist refutation of this axiom by the concept of resistance, which disqualifies any objection without answering to it. This is, a very, this is this very position with the correlationist, which creates in the discourse the effect of the radical autonomy of real, and then which was useful all the effect of surgical intervention upon the transcendental synthesis. The meaning of radical autonomy is cessation of larger rather than severing of real. The concept of resistance is an effect, as we said, of the theory of suspicion. But according to me, on events I admire, Marx, Nietzsche, and Hugh, realists should become at last suspicious with this venerable theory of suspicion. Because, as I said, it seems to me that we can make a genealogy of suspicion and his favorite notion, resistance, which discovers at its root, at its root, an inability to precisely and simply refuse the unbearable argument of the circuit. I refuse the suspicion because realism, in my view, must stay a rationality. The circle argument is an argument and must be treated as such. You don't refuse the mathematical demonstration because the mathematicians are supposed to be sickly or full of frustrated libido. You just refuse <laughs> what you refute. I clearly understood the calamitous consequences of the notion of resistance when I heard an astrologer answering practically to a skeptic that his incredulity was predictable since he was, since he was a Scorpio. <laughs> <laughs> what does that say, consequently? Is to build up a realism relieved from strategy of suspicion. A realism which doesn't need to disqualify the correlationist because it has clearly refuted it. I want that easy and implacable refutation to go over to the other side, from correlationism to realism. And conversely, the argument of resistance to become the last possible instance of the correlationism to <coughs> But I don't want to refute only to refute and win the discussion. As we shall see, I'm looking for a creative refutation. That is, a refutation which discovers the truth, an absolute truth, inside the circle itself. That's why I propose an access to real, not grounded on an axiom, but on a demonstrated principle, the principle of factuality, that I'm now going to set up. The main problem I try to face in after finitude is precisely to build up the materialism or realism able to refute clearly the correlational circle in its simplest, simplest form, which, all, which is also the form the most difficult to fight with. That is, we never, we, may, we never have access to something else than the access. The in itself is unknown since we only know the for us. Here is my strategy. The weakness of correlationism consists in the duality of its opponents. Correlationism is not, in my definition, an anti-realism, but an anti-absolutism. Correlationism is the modern way to reject all possible knowledge of an absolute. It is a claim that we are closed up in our representation, conscious, linguistic, historical one, 
without a sure access to an eternal reality independent from our specific, our specific point of view. But there are two main forms of the absolute. The realist one, which is a non-thinking reality independent of our access to it, and the idealistic one, which is the absolutization of the correlation itself. Therefore, correlationism must also refute speculative idealism or any form of vitalism or paroxysticism if it wants to reject all the modalities of the absolute. But for this second refutation, the argument of the circle is useless because idealism and vitalism consist precisely in claiming that it is the circle itself which is the absolute. Let's examine briefly the idealist and vitalist argument. I call subjectivist metaphysics any absolutization of a determinate human access to the world. And I call subjectivist, to make sure, the supporter of any form of subjective metaphysics. Correlation between thought and being has many different forms. The subjectivist claims that some of these relations, or indeed all, are determinations not only of man, but of being itself. It projects in the things themselves a correlation which can be perception, intellection, wanting, etc. And makes it the absolute itself. Of course, this process is far more elaborated than, than, than I see here, especially for Hegel. But the very principle of uh, subjectivism is always the same. It consists in refutating realism <coughs> and correlationism by the following reasoning. Since we cannot conceive a being which would not be constituted by our relation to the world, since we cannot escape from the circle of correlation, the whole of this relation, or an imminent part of this whole, represents the very essence of, of any reality. According to the subjectivist, it is absurd to suppose, as the correlationist does, that there could be an in itself different from any human correlation to the world. The subjectivist thus turns the argument of circle against the correlationist himself. Since we can't think any reality independent from human correlations to the world, it means, according to subjectivist, that the supposition of such reality existing outside the circle is a nonsense. And the absolute is the circle itself, or at least a part of it. This is why I disagree with Boissier's identification between what I call correlationism and what Lowell calls philosophy. It seems to me that Lowell, Lowell's notion of philosophy as a circle of decision includes Hegel as well as Kant, idealist speculation with transcendental correlationism. In my view, it is on the contrary essential to distinguish between them since this distinction demonstrates the necessity for correlationism to produce a second argument able to respond to the idealist absolute. This necessity of a second argument is extremely important since, as we shall see, it will become the flaw of the circle fortress. This second argument, as I claim in a certain attitude, is the argument of facticity, and I must now explain its exact meaning. I call facticity the lack of reason of any reality. That is, the impossibility to give an ultimate ground to the existence of any being. 
We can reach to we can reach conditional necessity, never absolute necessity. If definite causes of physical laws are positive, so we can claim that a determined effect must follow. But we shall never find a ground to these laws and causes, except eventually other ungrounded causes and laws. There is no ultimate cause, nor ultimate there is no <coughs> ultimate cause, nor ultimate law. That is, a cause, a cause or a law, including the ground of its own existence. But this facticity, this ultimate and grounding of things, is also proper to the thought. The Cartesian cogito clearly shows this point. What is necessary in the cogito is a conditional necessity. If I think, then I must be. But it is not an absolute necessity. It is not necessary that I should think. From the inside of the correlation, I have access to my own facticity, and so to the facticity of the world correlated to my subjective access to it. I do it by the lack of an ultimate reason of a cause suite able to ground my existence. Facticity defined, facticity to define is according to me the fundamental answer to any absolutization of the correlation. For if correlation is factual, we cannot say anymore as the idealist that it is a necessary component of any reality. Of course, a subjectivist may object that conceiving the non-being of a subjective correlation is a pragmatic contradiction, since the very conception of it proves we exist as a subject. So that we exist. We don't, when we conceive non-existent, non-being, we are existing. But we can reply this time that we can conceive of facticity even from the inside of the correlation of system, since Fichte himself has proved it. Indeed, Fichte conceived his first principle, I equal I, the relation of the I to himself, as essentially ungrounded in my vocabulary as essentially factual. Of course, for Fisch, the first principle is not a fact, but an act, the act of conceiving the, the eye. But this act is essentially free, according to Fisch. That means not necessary. We choose or not to posit our own subjective reflection, and this <coughs> choice is not grounded on any necessary cause, since our freedom is radical. But to say this is just recognized as Sotheker, that our subjectivity cannot reach an absolute necessity, but the conditional one, even if Fist speaks abundantly of the absolute and unconditional necessity, his necessity is no more the dogmatic and substantial necessity, but a necessity grounded on the freedom itself ungrounded. There can be no dogmatic proof that correlation must exist rather than not, and this absence of necessity is sufficient to reject idealist claim of its absolute, of its absolute necessity. Correlationism is then constituted of two arguments. The circle of correlation against naive realism, it's called by this name, a realism unable to refute the circle, and the facticity against speculative idealism, against subjectivism. The idealist, the subjectivist, prefers to defeat correlationist by the absolutization of correlation. I believe that we can defeat the correlationist only by the absolutization of facticity. Let's see why. The correlationist must claim against the idealist that we can conceive the, the, contingent, the contingency of correlation. That is, it's possible to <coughs> a priori 
example, with the extinction of humanity, correlation is contingent. We can't consider the contingency of correlation. But by this way, the correlation is <coughs> admit that we can positively think of a possibility which is essentially independent from correlation, since this is precisely the possibility of the non-being of correlation. We can make an analogy with death. To think of myself as mortal, I must admit that death doesn't depend on my own thinking about my death. Otherwise, I would be able to disappear on one condition, being still alive to think of my disappearance and make this event a correlate of my access to it. In other words, I could be dying indefinitely, but I could never pass away, because I would have to be existing to, to make of death a correlate of my own subjective access to it. If facticity can be conceived, if it is a notion that we can effectively conceive, and it must be the case for the correlationist if he wants to refuse the idealist, then it is a notion we can think as an absolute. The absolute lack of reason of any reality, or, in other words, the effective ability of every determined entity, event, thing, or law, or subjectivity, to appear and disappear with no reason to its being or non-being. And reason becomes the attribute of an absolute time able to destroy and create any determined entity, even thing or law, without any reason of creating or on destroying it. What I try to show by this is concerns the condition of thinkability of the essential opposition of correlationism, the opposition of the in itself and the for us. The thesis of correlationism is that I can't know what the reality would be, what the reality would be without me, without us, without thinking, without thought. According to him, if I remove myself from the world, I can't know the residue. But this reasoning supposes that we have access to an absolute possibility, the possibility that the in itself could be different from the for us. And this absolute possibility is grounded, in turn, on the absolute facticity of the correlation. It is because I can conceive the non-being of the correlation that I can conceive the possibility of the in itself essentially different from the world being correlated to human subjectivity. Consequently, I can refute the correlationist refutation of realism rather on the accusation of pragmatic contradiction. Because I discover in correlational reasoning a pragmatic contradiction. His fundamental notions for us and in itself are grounded on an implicit absolutization, the absolutization of facticity. Everything can be conceived as contingent depending on human tropism. Everything except contingency itself. Contingency and only contingency is absolutely necessary. Facticity and only facticity is not factual but eternal. Facticity is not a fact, is not one more fact in the world. This necessity of facticity, I call it the factuality. And the principle which announces the factuality, the necessity of facticity, the non-facticity of facticity, I call it principle of factuality. Finally, I call speculation factual, the speculation grounded on the principle of factuality. It is rather difficult to translate this expression in English. 
English factual corresponds to the French factuel. The name facticité and the adjective factual correspond to what I call in French facticité or factuel. But I need an adjective for factuality. And this factuality, that is factuality in English. So I created the French neologism factual. It's written like factual, but it means the contrary. <laughs> and speculation factual means speculation which is grounded on the factuality, the non facticity of facticity. So I show you the French expression speculation factual until Red Brassier finds the best translation. <laughs> By the principle of factuality, I can access to speculative realism, which clearly refutes but no more scalifies relationality. I think I need independent of any thinking, and I know that thanks to the correctness himself and to its fight against the absolute, the, ide the idealist absolute. Principle of factuality unveils the ontological truth hidden in the radical skepticism of modern philosophy. To be is to be factual, and this is not a fact. I shall now move on to my last part the intellectual intuition. I used this expression in Astrophinitus to characterize thinking excess of actuality. That is the excess of facticity as an absolute. And Brassier wrote that such a notion threatens to close me again into the circle of correlation. Intellectual intuition, using heavy idealist connotations, seems to entail an absolutization of meaning, hence an absolutization of thought. It seems to be a dangerous concession made to coalitionists. Let's try to respond to answer to this objection, to answer this objection. What did I mean exactly by this expression, intellectual intuition? What did I take the risk to use an, ideal, an idealist expression in order, of course, to subvert its meaning? From now on, I shall use, if you prefer, the oxymoron, intuition dianoetique, dianoetic intuition. I mean by these words, the essential intertwining of a simple intuition and of a discursivity, a demonstration, both being entailed in the access to factuality. Let's explain this part. What do I think that Lavelle says to escape correlationism? It is because he doesn't begin by refuting correlationism, <coughs> but by positing as an axiom a real supposed to precede any position. If you begin by the real, you can't refute the objection of the circle, that is, real is a positive real. Lawrence predicts the real as autonomous and deduces from this axiom that thought is contingent for real. I believe you must begin by correlationism, then show that correlationism must itself posit the facticity of correlation and demonstrate by this way that this facticity is absolute contingent. Then finally, you will accede to an independent real. Hence, the only way to the real, according to me, is a demonstration. A demonstration unveils that facticity is not an ignorance of the hidden reason of all things, but a knowledge of the absolute contingency of all things. The simple intuition of facticity is trans it trans transmuted by a dianoia, by a demonstration, in an intuition of radical exteriority. I saw that facticity was a sign of the finitude and ignorance of thought. I thought I had with facticity a relation to my own undeficient subjectivity. I discovered now that what I took for human idiocy was truly an intuition, a radical intuition that is a relation 
to the great outside. We have a nous unveiled by a dialogue, an intuition unveiled by a demonstration. This is why I call it an intellectual intuition. Not because it is, of course, an intuition which creates its object that can find it, but because it is an intuition discovered by a reasoning. I'd like to conclude with a final comparison between the principle of factuality and other philosophies which tried in the 20th century to access the real outside the circle of subjectivity from Heidegger to Derrida. The main difference between these philosophies and the speculation factual is that the latter avoid what I'd like to call the syndrome of real without realism. Philosophies of the 20th century, even when they try to escape correlationism, generally, not always, but generally, denigrate realism, identified to naive or dogmatic realism. Rassi, in his book, pre excellently presents the meaning of these thoughts, I quote. Thus, for much of 20th century continental philosophy, from Heidegger and Derrida to Levinas and Adorno, the only conceivable alternative to the Silla of idealism, on one hand, whether transcendental or absolute, and the charity of realism, which, is, which it seems is only, never, only ever naive, on the other, lies in using the resources of conceptualization against themselves in the hope of glimpsing some transcendent non-conceptual exteriority. I, say, I think we can say the following. This real as non-conceptual residue of concept separates itself from any realism because it forbids any possibility, it forbids any possibility of a conceptual discourse about real, about the real in itself. We can speak about the real as the impossibility of any conceptualization, but we can't conceptualize the real. There is a disjunction between real and logos. A realism is on the contrary, according to me, a logos which turns to the real instead of turning around it. But what does I mean by but what I mean excuse me that um, turning to the real concerning the speculation factor? My thesis is that there are specific conditions of contingency that I call figures. Figures. For example, I try to show that non-contradiction, I said it, is a condition of contingency. <coughs> For a contradictory reality couldn't change, since it would already be what it is not. The necessity of non-contradiction is for me the consequence of the falsity, the falsity of the principle of reason. Because nothing has any reason to be and say what it is. Because everything can change without any reason, nothing can be contradictory. That is what I notably try to demonstrate in a self-initude, so that the conceptual discourse about the properties of the real proves to be possible. We are not condemned to real without realism. I refuse this real without realism because if I don't have a rational procedure to discover specific property of real, those properties threaten to be arbitrarily positive. My own work consists in elaborating this procedure that I call derivation, grounded on the principle of factuality and the condition of contingency. Producing a, pro a procedure of this sort is for me one of the main challenges of the contemporary reality. 
To conclude, I would say that what contemporary philosophy lacks is less real than realism. Real with realism is a true challenge of philosophy, and that's why I think that the title of our day, speculative realism, was perfectly chosen, and in itself a sort of event. Thank you.
as a relation to the epsilon. Uh, why? Because this is this argument uh, works works only if you suppose it has in fact the possibility to think its own facticity. But you can't think this facticity without thinking it as an absolute. Because if you think that this facticity exists only as a correlate, so facticity of thinking exists as a correlate of thinking, so thinking itself cannot be factual because facticity disappears in the same size than the self and so to resuscitate from the revised. 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 Uh, revised. You know, facticity is a correlate. If facticity is a correlate of, of the self, no? the self is no more factual. And if facticity was only thinkable as a correlate of the self, we, we, we would be all philosophers and all men would be idealist philosophers. We could, we could even imagine us to that. Uh, I try to to show, uh, I, was this, uh, I was discussing this with Ray, uh, and, and Ray, uh, Ray has a, a, a very interesting uh, reading of Heidegger. You know, uh, uh, the thing for death, I don't know how you translate the word, uh, being to our death. For me, it is not being to our death, you know, because death is a correlate of the being in the world. Death cannot find Heidegger be conceived except as a correlate of the being in the world of the design. So there is no being towards death. Because if you want, you want to be being towards death, you have to conceive an event able to survive you. You have to conceive a time able to survive you. Because if time disappears with you, you don't disappear. To disappear is to disappear in time. So, uh, is it a demonstration? I try to. to, to I think there is a, here there is a demonstration because the demonstration of correlationism means the contrary of what it seems to mean, but it is still a demonstration. The demonstration, what is the demonstration? It is that you can destroy any reality, any discourse as an absolute discourse, an absolute reality, with the virtual way, saying that it is contingent. Give me the reason. Give me a reason why it should be an universal discourse, an universal truth, an universal reality. Give me the reason. We don't have the possibility to give the reason. And I think it's always like that in the history of philosophy. Metaphysics and skepticism, they are, they are always two both fighting against each other. But it is always in the skepticism that metaphysics uh, 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 has a revival. Skepticism of Montaigne was the key of the new metaphysics of Descartes because it has discovered a new, a new way of thinking. I think the contemporary skepticism, the contemporary correlationism, gives us, show us where is the absolute, where is what you confuse. What you confuse, I think, is contingency because you can't say that facticity is a fact. If you say facticity is a fact, even contingency is contingent, what are you saying? The one who can say that is Hegel. Contingency is contingent since there is necessity in fact. So if you are a metaphysical philosopher, uh, 
your product, your research circle, you know. And, you, and I think it's difficult for me here to, to show it. I think there is a demonstration to see all of that. I think that philosophy can be a discourse made of demonstration if it renounces to be a medium demonstration of what there is. That's what I, 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 I said to, to Brown, you know. I think you can demonstrate strictly some truth, but this truth being the truth of the radical constituency of things, you absolutely let the, the freedom of all possible description and conflictual description of work. Uh, and effectively, I think that, uh, for me, speculation must, must only be made of this sort of demonstration, and that the absence of reason, the lack of reason, is what I call irreason, but not deraison. I don't know how to translate it. There is no reason to the world, but it's not uh, madness. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not just uh, delirium, you know. Uh, you can uh, have reasoning, strict reasoning, about the absence of reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the really depends on something level. Um, but I just have one question, and um, a huge conflict fear of mine that while I was going over your question in my head, it was already answered. So if that happens, please don't have fun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really serious. Okay. Um, so I want to um, take what you, what you, um, ask you you said earlier, and I think it's when you're uh, responding to Ray, maybe when you're responding to Graham. Um, you said that your project is one of possibility. How is it possible for science to know things about a pre-human world, you know, such as you know, the archipelagos? Then when, um, I think it's when you were responding to Graham, you mentioned that if everything is, um, you know, factical, you know, everything contained has to be factical, the only way we can know about particular things is through description, like through phenomenological description. So my question will be, what would a phenomenological relation to something like the archipelago would be like? You know, how would that be possible? Uh, in Astrophimitude, I try to uh, await the attention of the, of the, of the reader uh, by the artificial problem, what I call the problem of the artificial The problem of the artificial it was for me, uh, it was for me, uh, a way to to, to write in a, a, a context completely dominated by correlationist uh, philosophy. So I try to, to, to show to the correlationist reader, generally correlationist, that there could be a problem in correlationism. The first chapter is maybe there is a problem with this thing. And I just debated, uh, I just showed this, this problem like that. Uh, Correlationism is uh, just a consequence of Kantian philosophy. Kantian philosophy is a philosophy which pretends to answer the question how sciences are possible, how physics are possible. Okay, but the problem is that physics uh, is uh, describing some realities which precede uh, the human existence and even the, 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 the existence of the Earth. Of every any any analyzing reality. So, can we explain the, the meaning of science with a, a translator or a collectionist philosophy, which says there is no sense, no meaning, there are no sense to affirm, to, to affirm that a reality could exist without a subject to be the correlate of the reality. Uh, 
In the Big Bang, just a correlation of the astrophysician, but the astrophysician, if you say, oh, your Big Bang is just your correlation. No, 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 I assure you, it was. I'm not so old. <laughs> there is a problem. There is a little problem. Uh, but what, uh, according to me, there is no special problem in the description. You can describe with the real fact, uh, but you have to explain how thought is able to speak to a reality which is not related to the to the thought. That's why my project, uh, my project of realism, realism, is to try to respond to the Kantian question: How sciences are possible? It is a transcendental question, but the response, the answer, can be transcendental. It's always from the inside I try to make harm the correlations. It's from the inside the reactive is a way to to make harm to the first to the Kantian philosophy from the inside. My problem is the problem of my problem is the problem of the meaning of sciences. To make harmful to Vectorian situation from the inside, etc. Uh, if sciences have significant sense, reality is not the creation of the self. So, how can it be possible? Um, my project is to derive from the contingency, which is absolute, the condition which would be, uh, which would render me able to deduce the absolutization of the mathematical discourse. So it would it would ground the possibility of sciences to speak about an absolute reality, I mean not a necessary reality in this fact, but a reality independent of the self. I mean the physical universe, which is not necessary, but which is the independent of uh, of self. There is two sets of absolute. Absolute in the first sense is ne absolutely necessary. Contingency is absolutely necessary. But the second sense, absolute is what is not essentially related to the thing. The physical universe is not necessary, according to me, but is absolutely independent of the, of the top. I want to ground this, the possibility of these two absolute. Mm, um, this, is, this really now has just become a supplement to Dustin's question. It's almost the same question. Um, your argument is philosophically positive and um, constructive, constructive movement, but it seems like for, for, um, on the plane of natural science, it's very destructive. Um, or it seems like it could be destructive because you begin with a position where um, we assume that um, natural, the, the natural laws are, are necessary, but we can only assume that for us. So, in other words, we have a, a working system of natural science, but always with the correlationist coefficient added to everything we say. Where we end up is um, with a situation where um, you get rid of the correlationist coefficient, but instead you have you have the factical coefficient. So. You, ha you have the absolute knowledge of contingence, the necessity of contingency, but my question is, can you then replenish that, the emptiness of that with natural science? Can you rebuild natural science on that? Because surely any, any scientific statement you make m may not be valid tomorrow or in, you know, in, a mi in the next minute. 
So doesn't it just destroy the basis of natural science at the same time as it secures the rational foundation? Uh, I say, uh, right, I say that everything is contingent. So laws, according to me, are contingent. But are really contingent. They are not necessary, as the new, that we are unable to demonstrate this necessity. I think that uh, irrationality, you see in English, irrationality, mm. uh, irrationality, uh, in fact, is a consequence of the believing in necessity of law. If you believe that laws are necessary, what 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 are the consequences? One, you believe that laws are necessary. Two, you are unable to explain why they are necessary. You are unable to demonstrate the necessity of laws if you are not a girl. So you have a mysterious necessity. Or if you want to 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 look for the cause of this mysterious necessity, as the anthropist, you you, you find God. Uh, so it's, uh, in fact, the, the, the real, what I call the real necessity, I mean the necessity of determined entity, necessity of love, necessity of things, metaphysical necessity. I, distinct, uh, I have a distinction between speculation, what I do, and metaphysics. Metaphysics is uh, dominated by the principle of reason, and the principle of reason says that things are necessary to be, to, 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 to say the things, things the things very simply. If you, if you think that things are necessary, as you can't anymore demonstrate this necessity, if you are not Hegel, so you create a mysterious entity. The, why, why the laws are, are, are necessary? It's extremely it's a big mystery. And it creates, today it creates, nowadays it creates a lot of superstition. Centropism, providentialism, etc. Uh, uh, oh, we, we are finished by the law. It's really incredible. One, they are necessary. Two, they have created man. <laughs> there must be a reason. <laughs> no, there's no reason because they are not necessary. That's my reason. They are not necessary. But how do you know that? By reason. By my reason. Hume <laughs> shows that. Hume says, just, 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 just use your, your reason. Beside the, uh, in front of the fact, ask yourself if there is a reason that if I, uh, if I, if I lash, if I let the bottom, it did not go down. Fine, demonstrate that it is necessary. You can't. But what do you, what, 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 does, it, what does it mean? It means that reason says you it is not necessary. <laughs> She, 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 she says it very loudly, it's in century and century, it is not necessary. You, you eat just an habit. You, you, <coughs> it's not. Uh, you don't have to You eat a question. 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 But but reason can't demonstrate that. Not because reason is deficient, but because we are done to reason. <laughs> who who are we believing it in? Who are we believing in? This, in where, when we think that uh, the, the, the laws are necessary, we are believing say you say say you our perception. Uh, it's, our, it's the experience because laws are stable. Stable, not necessary. Stable, stable doesn't mean necessity. Stability is not necessity. It's a fact. It's a fact. Uh, uh, for example, uh, for uh, for an insect, insect, I am very stable. If the insect uh, lives for three days, I will be immortal. No, I'm stable, more stable than the insect, but so on. Stability doesn't need necessity, okay? So, experience says there is stability, and reason says it is not necessity. 
And who, who, who metaphysicians are believing? Reason or perception? Reason or experience? Experience. Me, I want to believe reason. And reason says there is no reason. There is no reason, just laws must go on and go on. It's just a fact. And I don't think this is destruction of sciences. Why? Because it, it is on the contrary a rational demonstration that sciences must be empirical. Why physicians can't, physicists, physicists can't demonstrate a priori the, the reality, the determination of law? They can demonstrate by reason why laws are that or that. They must make some experiments very complex. Because these are facts, not necessities. These are facts. Um, I don't. Uh, we could say yes, but with your philosophy, laws could disappear in one minute. It's very, there is a lot of stress in this philosophy. I don't think we stress because when we think that contingency means frequent, frequent investigation, uh, we meant a reasoning with probabilities. But it's difficult for me to explain that. We think that if laws are contingent, so they should they should change frequency. It is a probabilist argumentation. And I try to, to show this. I try to deconstruct this reasoning, this probabilistic reasoning about the law. I try to show that in human in Kant you have this sort of reasoning. We we believe that if laws were contingent, they should be chaotic. No, no, no. Well, because we don't have the right, according to me, to apply probabilities to the law. Because there is no, because to apply to the universe itself is to believe that there is a, a, a universe as universe, the whole of the universe. Because you have the right to apply probabilities, for example, from a dice, because you have a, 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 a totality of cases, six cases. There is a totality of cases. If you apply them, this reasoning assumes for the universe in, in general, and say if, you, if the universe were contingent, there would be a, uh, there would be a, a probably probable changing. Uh, you, you, you you conceive a universe of universe, a, a, a heap of dice of universe, as if there could be, uh, as if you could conceive a uh, the totality of possibility. But according to me, there is no such totality of possibilities because the transcendent Transfinite of Cartier in mathematics in theory of theory in ensemble, set, set theory, uh, demonstrated that there is no quantity of all quantities. Quantities can be totalized. Okay, it's difficult, but uh, it's possible. Uh, we've already gone uh, a lot over, but there, I know there are a lot of people who want to ask questions. So I'll just take uh, the people that raise their hands. But if you, can you ask? Short questions and perhaps take them all and then can talk and answer because else we'll be here until eight. So um, uh, it was Ian, Ali, Peter, and Ray, and then we'll. Okay, I want to ask you about the principle of sufficient reason, actually, which you use exquisitely, I think, and in a properly line with the sense. You know, the principle of sufficient reason asks only that there be a reason for being. 
Um, not that it be the reason, or not that it might be another later, only that there be one. There must be reasoning. And it seems to me that that was one of the reasons why you, know, you, you demonstrate, both in your book and in your talk just now, um, a considerable admiration for the uh, logical inventiveness, the argumentative inventiveness of the, of the classical idealist. You have an homage in your, in, in, in your book to um, uh, uh, Bernard Bourgeois and his understanding of, uh, of, of, of Hegel, uh, for example. Um, and it strikes me this does provide exactly, this is in part of the response to, uh, to, to, to what Dustin was saying about, um, but, uh, about, the, about saving the sciences. And to go back to a question that, um, that raised much earlier in the day, which concerns um, really the, the issue of providability. There you have it. Um, we don't need to specify the quantity of sufficient reasons to be given over an infinite time, merely that it's not necessarily one. Okay. Uh, my, my, uh, yeah. I just, uh, my French is shocking. No, I can, I can hear it. It's about the critique of the reason and Ian said that you yeah, sorry, you yeah. repeat um, the yeah. I'll, I'll cut to the chase, actually. About the principle of sufficient reason, um, merely states that there be a reason. C'est-à-dire seulement qu'il doit y avoir une raison, pas, pas laquelle, ou pas, okay. pas quelle not, qu'elle sera. Not that there be one reason. C'est-à-dire qu'on peut la réviser. Mm-hmm. Et cette raison peut être, et il peut y avoir plusieurs raisons mm-hmm. qui changeront dans le temps. But there, there must be at least one Metaphysics, and particularly the metaphysics, sufficient reason, the pre-tensing metaphysics, 
and use that to demolish what are essentially epistemological arguments that underpin the correlation of both campuses. And I where, for example, the question of necessity is much more difficult to distinguish from the, the status of, of the fact, of the factual. So the question of what is necessary about a certain factual configuration that we necessarily uh, read oxygen or that we that gravity is a necessary relation between masses and so on, so that reason tells us that there is a reason why the bottle falls to the ground. All those kinds of facts, right? But which which have a which the correlation which says we can know as necessary, in other words, as, as having a rational justification, and we can have an account of gravity and so on. But so the correlation position is not about the ontological status of things. That it's not that something to be is to be the correlate of the thought. It's just a bland epistemological argument of what we can know <coughs> about gravity or about evolution or those kinds of things. And so I don't see how the correlations would be affected by your reputation. They would simply say, you are telling us that we can know things about an absolute reality independent of knowledge. And they would simply ask you, well, tell us what you know about death or about the Big Bang and so on, independent of our knowledge of it, and you will be able to tell them nothing. In other words, it would be a kind of negative, it would have a status for something like arguments that justify something like a negative theology. We can reason our way to knowing that there must be something about which we know nothing. Uh, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't this. Um, Correlationism, you're right, is not, uh, um, not an intelligent strictly speaking. Uh, when I say for a correlation is to be to be a correlate, uh, yes, for us. Not necessarily in itself. The correlation is, is, is true. Doesn't say that the reality is correlation. It is the metaphysics, the subjectivity who says that. It just says we cannot know anything but what we can perceive or conceive, etc. That's all. Uh, I, I refuse to say, uh, on the contrary, that I can't say anything about the other. Uh, if I can deduce from the absence of reason, from contingency, that things in itself must be to be contingent, non-contradictory, I can say something about the other. I know that even if we don't exist, things are not contradictions. Things are non-contradictory. So my problem is precisely to deduce from facticity some determinations which are precise, fixed determinations, and which are able to explain the very simple thing. When I look for this person, when I, I look at this person, I see empirical data with which seems to be contingent. And in this bottle, there is something which is not visible, perceptible. Uh, uh, it's facticity, which is invisible. Only humans can, can conceive the facticity of the bottle, because to conceive it means to be able to, 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 to ask some question. Why this bottle? For this cause and this cause? Yes, but why this cause? For this cause and other cause, I'm loved, why is it loved, etc. And facticity, for me, is 
uh, uh, position, which is the position necessary for correlationism, because correlationism uh, at the end can't answer and doesn't want to answer to the question of the ultimate question. If it could answer, it wouldn't be uh, correlationism anymore. So facticity is right, uh, a thesis of the correlationist. But the correlationist said facticity is only our inability to conceive the ultimate ground. Maybe there is an ultimate ground, maybe not, says the correlationist. Facticity is not contingency, says the correlationist. It's called contingency to mean that I know there is no ground. And for the correlationist, I don't know if world is necessary or, or contingent. We don't know. Practicity for the correlationist is just our inability to conceive the ultimate goal, not the lack of the ultimate goal. But what I say is that if you want to conceive this practicity as just an ignorance, in fact, you conceive implicitly the capacity of the thought to conceive its own end, so to conceive positively an event which is not dependent of its conceiving. You say you cannot, you can't say anything about this death. I can't say anything of what it is like to be dead. But I can speak about death as an absolute time which is able to destroy any determined entity and which respects the principle of the contradiction. <coughs> so I speak about what is, what, uh, what is the condition of death. I don't think of what it is like to be dead, of course. Oh yeah, just very quickly. Um, thank, thank, that was great. It, it cleared a lot of things up. Um, it's just basically, I wonder if um, the argument from performance of contradiction, the, the key correlationist argument, is as strong, is as um, irrecusable as, as 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 you seem to be suggesting, because. The claim is that to posit something non-positive, this is you know, the performance of contradiction, but in order, the correlationist must claim to know that the difference between the positive real and the non-positive real is already internal to this concept, to this act of positing. So in other words, the correlationist says, uh, how does the correlationist know that there's no difference between the concept of an indifferent real and the indifferent real? He accuses the metaphysician of transgressing um, the, the bounds of knowledge by saying, by insisting that there's a difference between reality and our indifferent reality and our concept of, of indifferent reality. But in order to do that, the correlationist must know that that difference is itself conceptual. How does the, the correlationist know that the difference between the concept of indifference and real indifference is itself internal to the concept, is itself an act of, because the act of positing itself presupposes that there's already a relation, and you must know that you exist in order to be positing, and the relation is not itself positing. There's always something that, that seems to kind of escape and precede the kind of, uh, as a condition of positing. And in order for, for, the, for the correlations to say, yes, but I've already posited this difference, he must transcend he must claim that this is already internal to, um, it's already internal to the concept, it's already internal to thought. So isn't, in other words, so, and, and, uh, it might be that the argument from performative contradiction used by the correlations is not as robust and as devastating as, 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 they, as they claim it is. Um, uh, 
you ask how how the correlationists know that there is a difference between the x and the positive x. How do you know there is no difference? Yes, there is no. There is a difference, but the difference is internal to the act of positing. Uh, in fact, the correlationist says he doesn't know. Mm. But he says that the metaphysics doesn't know. Uh, neither. neither. Doesn't know neither. That's all. He, he says to the metaphysician, how do you know that you are speaking about the X, okay. which is essentially the same <coughs> as the positive X about, about which you are effectively speaking? Okay. How do you know that? But how do you know there isn't a difference? Uh, no, the correlation doesn't say. Uh, I, 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 I'm very, very uh, I, I'm speaking from the correlation. Okay. Uh, I answer, I ask for myself a question, a very, very simple question. No, sorry, not very simple question, but it will be the last. Uh, is Kant, built, uh, when I, I was running Kant, uh, for years, and one, one day I asked myself, oh, uh, for Kant, are we sure that the thing in itself is different from the phenomenon? Because we could think that Kant said, Think in itself is uh, unknown doesn't mean think in itself is different from phenomenon, but it means that we don't know if it is the same or not the same. And Kant, in consider uh, that aesthetics, in fact says we know that things in itself cannot be uh, the same than the phenomenon. That's why, in fact, he says three, three, three things about the thing in itself. He says think in itself exists, think in itself is uh, thinkable, so non-contradictory. That's what the commentator said. But in fact, he says the third thing. Thinking itself is not identical to space-time phenomena. He knows that. He knows that by a very interesting argument, which is uh, we can make science about phenomena. So, if it was a phenomenon uh, just empirically, uh, empirically known, we could make we couldn't make science about it because. There will be no form, no subjective form, which is always the same. Science is possible because we have a subjective form, which is always the same, space, time, and category. And so, if science is possible, it demonstrates we don't know. Thank you. If science demonstrates we don't have any, 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 any knowledge about thinking about Okay. So, in this thing, for a correlation is that Kant has an argument, very interesting, that we know that thinking itself cannot be the same as the subject of the phenomenon. But I don't even say that. I, I don't say that. I just say my correlationist is mo more modest than Kant. He, he, says, he just says that. He says, we don't know if the x, the absolute x, is the same as the positive x. Maybe it is the same. Maybe. Why not? But me, Say the Kardashianist, I don't know if it is a case or not. How could I know? Who could I know? Uh, he, he, uh, as said Hegel, uh, you cannot surprise uh, from behind the thing to, to know where the things are when we are not there. You know? uh, if we are paranoid, we can make uh, some microbes in, uh, in our house and know what people say about us when we are not there, but we don't cannot do that for the things. What are the things that we are not there? That's all. The, 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 we cannot go, let's say, our seeds, uh, we cannot go outside from our skin 
to, 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 to know what is the world. But that's all. Maybe the irony would be that maybe the world is exactly <laughs> in itself. <laughs> and for us, wow! <laughs> Philosophers are absolutely unuseful. So. <laughs> maybe, maybe, creationism doesn't say it is, it is impossible. It says unknowing. Okay, well, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank an uh, invigorating and discordant uh, quartet and you in the audience and uh, move on to uh, the drinks kindly provided by Robert, whose uh, journals you will immediately buy in uh, large quantities. So, Thank you for tuning in to Cultural Technologies. I hope you enjoyed the lecture. Uh, again, you've been listening to Quentin Mayasu's 2007 uh, talk from the Speculative Realism Conference held at Goldsmiths University of London. That conference was organized by Ray Brassier and Alberto Toscano. It was co-sponsored by the journal Collapse, which is itself edited by uh, uh, Robin McKay, who helped us get a copy of this recording. Um, one other side note, uh, normally we try to put up an episode every two weeks. This episode came a little bit late because I had, uh, and I have, this nasty cold that has been preventing me from speaking very clearly. Uh, so apologies for the delay on uh, this podcast hitting uh, the, the internet. And I regret to announce that the next episode may also be delayed because uh, later this month I am going on a long extended trip from uh, Berlin to Chicago to New York and beyond. So either the next episode will be delayed or it may be something uh, simple like another bootleg rather than an interview. Uh, so thank you again for tuning in to Cultural Technologies. You can reach us online as always at www.cultural-technologies.com or through my website www.bernardg.com. Thank you. Thank you.